guys, it's Tats here from Castagra, and you're listening to Specify, the Building Materials Innovation Podcast. The goal of this podcast is to help the entrepreneurs and the innovators who are making a positive difference in the building materials, coatings, and construction industry. Each episode, we'll tap leaders and experts from inside and outside the industry to provide the mental tools, skills, and insights to make an impact. Today's guest is John Durig, founder of North American Construction Technologies. John was a founding partner of General Polymers and grew it to $25 million before it was acquired by Sharon Williams. John, thanks for coming on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah, like, tell me more about your background, John. Well, I think a lot of it ties into why I'm involved with NACT right now, but I, I have kind of an unusual background in that I've moved across or, or through the supply chain in the coatings world. I worked for raw material suppliers of people who manufactured epoxy resins, epoxy curing agents urethanes, all sorts of raw materials that go into the high-performance coatings industry. And I ended up being the vice president general manager for sharing Berlin polymers for the United States, North America, representing or driving that business. And from there, I actually suggested to sharing that we acquire a company called General Polymers who is a formulator for coatings for concrete and steel, all two-component, heavy-duty, high-performance coating systems. And the the sharing decided that they did not want to go ahead and forward integrate, but I thought it was a good enough idea that I did it myself. (laughs) So I became a partner in General Polymers and uh, resigned my, my position there and basically played Texas hold and then jumped off into the <laughs> world of entrepreneurs and never looked back. So from General Polymers, uh, it was a very small business to start with, about $9 million in sales revenue. And through an incredible team of people, we grew the business to $25 million in short order and then sold it to the Sherwin-Williams company. The Sherwin-Williams company allowed me to continue to run the business and kept it as a separate profit center for about eight or nine years. And so I continued to run that business from a sales, marketing, research, technical service, everything but accounting, which was a great blessing for me. <laughs> I ended up retiring in 2014. And I believe that the business now is worth about 110 to 115 million. I don't know for sure because I've been retired for a while, but it's certainly on track to be at least that size now. So I'm uh, very happy that this uh, company has continued to succeed and created a lot of opportunity for people within general polymers, some of whom are still there in leadership positions today. Wow. What was the uh, key of uh, growing that manufacturing business out? There were a couple of things. we created a very sharp focus from a research and development perspective on some needs within the marketplace. And they were based on going green. We were already basing our technology on 100% solids systems as much as possible. But almost everything we did 
and have done since then is, is been green, either high solids or water-based. The second focus was increasing the rate of return to service. So we recognized that we could create value in the marketplace by getting the surfaces that we were coding back to the owners as quickly as possible. So we focused on a lot of technology and developed some new technologies that address those issues that simply got the facility back up and running in a, at a faster rate. And the third focus was to eliminate adhesion problems due to moisture in concrete, which has been a tremendous issue in the entire construction industry because concrete is, is breathable and it contains water all of the time and the amount of water can hold changes with conditions. So those were the three elements that drove our research and development and led to numerous new products that were really the basis of growth and actually continue to be the basis of growth for that business today. Yeah. So your return to service technologies or, or methodology, what, what did they consist of? The technologies were based upon epoxy and urethane technology primarily. And we found ways to accelerate the cure rate and return it to service much more quickly. One particular technology that was quite popular in Europe and, and began growing in the mid-90s in the United States was urethane cement technology, which is actually a three-component system of uh, water-based urethane, two-component water-based urethane plus dry goods containing cement. And these products had several issues. They were not lead compliant. They took even longer than epoxies to develop their full cure. So we developed the urethane cement that you could return to service in four hours mm. and had outstanding thermal properties. So it fit into uh, several markets that we also focused on where we saw these needs as being terribly important. So in addition to that technology drive with, with urethane and epoxy technology, primarily, we also chose markets to focus on that were fairly recession-proof. We focused on the food and beverage industry, pharmaceuticals, healthcare, animal research, and our assumption that they were relatively recession-proof businesses proved to be well-founded in two downturns in the economy since I was with the business, where those businesses continue to grow. And I think it's, they're recession-proof because no matter what the economy is doing, people are going to eat, drink, and need drugs. <laughs> so it doesn't matter what happens in the economy, those three market segments tend to plot along and continue to grow at a, at a steady rate. So the growth uh, was really a result of both uh, the technical drive through researching and developing the market needs and coming up with ways to eliminate water as a adhesion problem and increase speed returning to service and then focusing on markets that were stable no matter what the economy did. Very nice. I like that. Sounds like a very solid plan. Now, so th th those are the, some of the keys of your growth. I mean, you've seen other manufacturers competitors at the time work their business and you looking at them from from the outside 
What are, what are some of the things that other companies do wrong that maybe you got you got right? Mm, that's an interesting question. I generally haven't worried much <laughs> about what the competition is doing or even if they know what my business is doing because it's really about the execution. So so I think that that companies in this business don't succeed and don't grow because they either have the wrong plan uh, and the wrong focus or because they fail in the execution. And I think it's generally the latter that is, is the issue. The execution of plan is absolutely the most single most important part of getting to success. First, establishing the goal, creating the action plan, and setting timelines, and then really importantly, reviewing and knowing when to stop. Hmm. I can give you an example that when I was working for sharing and I went to their research facilities in, in Germany, and this is many, many years ago, I sat down with the R&D people and I asked them, how many projects are you working on? Mm-hmm. And, and the number was, was crazy. It was like over 80 projects. Oh. And my question was, how many have you completed this week? And the answer was none. This month, none. This quarter, none. And so there was a great deal of satisfaction that was garnered by people who continually made progress on things but never completed them or certainly didn't complete them in a timely manner. I think that's also one of the problems that larger companies have being a small company and acting like a small company, even even as part of Sherwin-Williams. We were able to move quickly, to make decisions quickly, and then even if they were the wrong decision, find out quickly because we had a process by which we reviewed everything that we were doing against the timeline. Mm. So generally, we would look at three months, and at three months, we would make a decision about, are we on the right track? Are our assumptions correct? What did we learn? What do we need to change? and then set another three-month action plan and continue from there. Large companies have a very difficult time even getting a project approved and started because there are so many layers of management that have to agree before any action is taken at all. And then they tend to be very risk-averse. So anything that is risky gets put on the back burner. Anything, even new technology that may, let's say, scavenge existing business, even though it may be the way of the future, mm-hmm. generally is ignored because it will have a negative impact on some portions of the business. And one of the things I found, I said, let me put it another way. One of the things that I would look for in people that I wanted to work on our team were people who were risk takers. I would tell them, if you're not making a mistake once in a while, you're not walking close enough to the edge. You got to fall off once in a while. And there's no punishment for failure. But I looked for fearless people that weren't afraid to make a mistake. And if a mistake was made, we recognized it and changed course. The most important thing about mistakes is to make them only once. (laughs) <laughs> and and if you're fearless, you're not afraid of making mistakes. You recognize what they are and 
and you move on. I can say that the most important lessons that I've learned in my career have always come from something that failed. Yeah, absolutely. So maybe uh, what are some of those lessons you learned through those failures? Well, I think that the, I think it has to do with the fact that I've always been an entrepreneur, even if I was working, working for someone else. Mm -hmm. And so I'm eternally curious and not afraid to take risks. I think that's part of being an entrepreneur. Someone asked me once to define an entrepreneur, and I said, (laughs) it's someone who jumps off a cliff and figures out how to build wings on the way down. (laughs) So there's a certain amount of risk-taking that goes along with with being an entrepreneur. And I think that because of that, certainly early in my career, I would find something fascinating that was curious, and I would spend too much time on it. And so the the important lesson that I learned from being distracted by squirrels and shiny things (laughs) is that I have to have a very specific goal with an action plan and a timeline and a review period. So that that really is the most important lesson that I've learned from the failures that I've had in my career, where I simply spent too much time working on something that was really fun and interesting, but didn't quite have the market size, or we weren't able to come up with the right answer, or the cost structure wasn't quite right. But it was so fascinating that I chased it for a while. And the failures were always from that kind of action, chasing something that I was fascinated by, and not doing that action plan time and timeline and review. That's very good advice. Now, I know you you have a new venture. Tell me about that. Well, when I retired, started uh, Innovision Consulting, LLC, and I still have that business. And I wanted to focus on introduction of new technology. And because of my background of working through the supply chain, working for suppliers and formulators, and then working with engineers and architects as a formulator and end users, I got a great a different perspective on some of the challenges that our marketplace faces. I also feel that the industry has been incredibly generous to me and that I wanted to find a way to give something back to the industry, to stay connected, to continually, to continue to be helpful in some way. And so some folks who started NACT contacted me and they recognized something that, that I shared as a problem, and that is that companies, large companies with similar facilities throughout the United States have difficulty in getting their needs met consistently and correctly throughout the entire country. So they may have exactly the same facility in 10 different places in the United States, and they have 10 different solutions all of them with various costs and benefits associated with them. So one of the things that this group did was they were trying to put together a team of contractors that would work together, that would collaborate together in order to satisfy the needs of these end users who we felt were being underserved. So when I became involved, we made some significant changes in the organization. 
First, the organization is a group of specialty contractors focused on concrete coatings, repair, restoration, moisture mitigation, and renovation. So anything that has to do with protecting concrete or improving the performance of concrete is the focus of our market. And while that may seem very broad, there's actually a very small number of contractors, good contractors, who are focused on this, this particular market segment. And then, of course, our goal is to provide solutions to the most challenging problems in the construction process centered around concrete. So one of the things that I also believed was that there is no company in the entire supply chain who has the requisite skills, personnel, knowledge, tools, to satisfy some of these challenging problems, and none who can certainly do it across the entire country. And so we thought about how, how might we make that different? How can we create a different business model? So what I added to the organization was to make it a public benefit corporation. There's no tax benefit, but what a public benefit corporation does is not focus solely on the profitability and the return to shareholders, but rather to focus on the benefit of all stakeholders within that the organization serves. And so those stakeholders now include all those formulating, all those raw material companies, the, like the ones I used to work for, the formulators, the paint, paint manufacturers like General Palmer's and Sherwin-Williams, the specialty contractors who actually affect the installation of those solutions, and that's the core of our core membership in our company and our organization, but also engineering firms, architectural firms. Ultimately, that entire supply chain exists to serve the end users, the people who own the concrete, the people who own the structures, people who own the floors. We're all, in it. We're all in this business to provide solutions to them, but no one company can do it on their own. So by, let me extend that. Stakeholders are also the communities in which we live and, of course, the environment. So now the focus of the organization and the intent of every action that we take is not a NACT central perspective. It is a stakeholder perspective how can we work collaboratively? And our catchphrase is connection, communication, collaboration creates benefit. And so what we're doing is drawing in all members of this stakeholder community, working together to introduce new technology, to identify a need in the marketplace, and to find a way to satisfy it, either new technology or something that's currently there, but at least differentiate those solutions that exist today. And ultimately, we want to be able to install these systems and products onto concrete substrates at Fortune 500 companies, or let's call them multiple site organizations who have the same need across a very, very wide geography. And so what North American Construction Technology does is bring these people together in the same room, 
we allow the manufacturers of chemicals to introduce their new ideas, their new products, their new chemistry, and where they think it works. And importantly for them, we help them identify where that new science may fit within the marketplace. Where can we all extract the greatest value in an effort to collaboratively serve those people who ultimately need the coatings and concrete restoration products that are available or will be available in the future. For formulators, companies like Sherwin-Williams is a great example. And by the way, Sherwin-Williams is an awesome company. I was pleased to sell my company to them and, and pleased to be an employee for all those years. One of the challenges they have is their coatings manufacturer and the people that they're serving and trying to sell at a national account level want a contract, want one person to contact. They don't want to buy product from somebody and then go find contractors to, who are going to put it in for them. That just creates work for them. So what NACT is, is a solution not only to the end user's needs and desires, but also a solution to Sherwin-Williams issue, or not just Sherwin-Williams, it could be any company, mm -hmm. where they will not take a contract because they're simply selling coatings or paint. And now we can act collaboratively by being the installation arm and making sure that every single job is done exactly the same with the same products with the right answer that we have already collaborated on to present to engineering firms and owners as here are the options. Here's the best option that we believe. We can invite our raw material suppliers in to support our recommendations, our, the formulators, the coatings manufacturers, the contractors who install it and make joint calls on engineering firms or end users with engineering firms. The whole goal of NAC is to create this environment of collaboration and helpfulness. And one of the things that I'm absolutely convinced of is in this environment of incredible divisiveness in our country, there are people who really want to work together. And so we've been really pleased with the reception of organizations throughout the entire supply chain who are active collaborators with the North American Construction Technology Organization and have been repeat attendees at our meetings and have already said, here's what we want to do at your next meeting. <laughs> so the concept of collaboration and helpfulness is resonating, I think, with with many people within the industry. Okay. And if people don't want to do that, that's okay. There's plenty, because we only want to work with the people who share this attitude of authentically wishing to be helpful. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now, just, uh, I guess, two sort of questions. One is, how does the organization sort of generate revenue? Like, what's the, the business model there? And also, how do you sort of, because you have lots of contractors in there, get them to, to sort of stay sort of collaborative because is it divided territorially or, or whatnot? So maybe touch on those, those two. Okay, so the income sales revenue comes from a number of different avenues. And 
again, our goal is not to fill the coffers of, of Mac's bank account. It's to generate sufficient income to affect our goal of servicing these national accounts. And so we have the contractors who have a fee on the front end. There's a one-time fee of $10,000 that the contractors put in. And then the contractors on NAC-generated jobs also contribute a small percentage of revenue, sales revenue, on the jobs that NAC generate back to NAC so that they're, so that NAC is able to grow its sales force and enlist more and more people in that selling effort to to generate efforts at that national account level or the multiple site owner level. So that's one way we get sales revenue through the contractor network. The second way that we get revenue is through the material suppliers. So this would be the coatings manufacturers who have very generously offered a percentage of sales to NAC members to NAC as a commission or royalty. And so every dollar that our account contractors buy from our collaborative partners who, who happen to be manufacturers of coatings, every dollar they buy go create, create some revenue for NAC as well. Mm-hmm. And I can say that that has been the easiest part of getting NAC up and running because the formulators, the paint manufacturers, recognize that the most important element in their customer base is to avoid a claim. And you have lots of companies that will focus on sales revenue and they'll sell a product to anybody, even if they may not be qualified or have the experience to do it, and then they end up with a job failure. And having been in that role, there were people that were eating up tech service money (laughs) because they were doing it wrong. And we ended up having to send somebody out because it's our product to take care of it and fix it. And I used to tell our salespeople that one good job might get us another job. So if if we generate a job and a contractor buys our material and everything goes great, we'll probably get another job from that contractor. But if we have one bad job, we'll lose 10 jobs as a result of that. Mm-hmm. So avoidance of those bad jobs is really of critical importance. And so the manufacturers of these coatings are very appreciative of the fact that we vet the contractors who are part of our organization. We seek out and invite the contractors that we think fit the the concept and our high quality, low claims, they just take care of issues generally by doing it right the first time. So that is the single most important thing for a uh, coatings manufacturer is to have that right contractor. And NAC does that for them. Mm. So not only is it a source of, of growing sales revenue because we can act as an installation arm and we're considering even taking the contract for every job around the country and having one contractor manage that whole contract. And now we have basically a seamless one point of contact organization that can take care of all their needs, no matter where the site is in the United States or Canada. So that's how we generate our sales revenue. 
the concept of competition and coverage is, it certainly is an issue. And there have been contractors that express an interest into it in our organization, but immediately expected a region or territory for them exclusively. Mm -hmm. And that's a disqualifier as a potential member for an act. And, and the reason is very simple. If you believe that you should have this area carved out just for you, then you can't possibly believe the central tenant of collaboration <laughs> as, and be part of NAC. It just won't work. Mm-hmm. We just don't fit as organizations. Mm-hmm. What we do have are a group of members, one one member here at our recent meeting in Salt Lake City, opened up his entire facility to the other contractors from around the country, gave them a tour of his facility, and they shared ideas on how to manage inventory, on how to manage material flow through the plant, through their, their own facilities. They shared information on Actually, we've, we've already generated through the cooperation and collaboration of several contractors, a safety program that will meet the most stringent requirements of any potential site that we might be on. That would include anything that had to deal with explosives, with flammables, with medicine, with clean rooms, with anything. So we put together a safety program that all of our members can now use as part of the benefit they get of being members as part of their, not only for national accounts, but on a daily basis, wherever they go, they can present this comprehensive safety program, the result of a collaborative effort that is theirs. They own it because they're part of, part of this organization. So it can be a challenge to find the right contractors. And I would say that there were a couple that came with that view, but when we had conversation about looking at the overall benefit, then they became, let's say, not not only on the bandwagon, they were out front leading the charge. <laughs> Makes sense. So just trying to develop the right culture within that group. Yeah, I think that the, the most important thing is this intent. And by making NACT a public benefit corporation, we change the intent of every action we take from self-centered to service. And that's what excites me about this organization. It is my way of giving back. It's my way of staying active and staying connected with people that are very talented and have lots of good ideas. Very nice. Yeah, I, I could definitely sense your, your passion with this. Outside of this new venture you have, what other passions do you have? <laughs> yeah, well, I am an avid cyclist. I road bike several thousand miles a year. Oh, wow. I'm an avid mountain biker. Um, I ski as many days as I can each winter. I live within 10 miles of two world-class ski resorts here in Utah. And I spend a great deal of time skiing throughout the winter. And then, of course, there's my kids and grandkids. I have three daughters and six grandkids. And 
there's nothing I enjoy more than spending time with those grandkids. <laughs> Very cool. So you've been an entrepreneur your whole life, which means you'd have to deal with so many unsort of expected situations. What sort of uh, habits or routines have sort of kept you uh, on the track for all those years? Well, I'd like to minimize the surprises as much as possible, <laughs> but I think if I, I kind of look at it at a very high level and it's like, what, what are the things that have led to whatever monicum of success I've had? And I would go back to some earlier comments. One is being a risk taker, not afraid to make mistakes, learn from them. That's, that's critical. Being eternally curious. In fact, <laughs> A few years ago, I wrote to my grandchildren, most of whom were not even born mm -hmm. at the time. I wrote them two letters, one on being curious and one on being fearless. Mm. And those were the two things I think that, or two characteristics that allowed me to, to take these risks and to well, <laughs> at least be more successful, to be successful more often than not. <laughs> I think those were the those are the two traits that I think are most important and that I think have kind of guided me through through this entire career. It's always been a matter of take some risks and if it's wrong, you'll fix it. It's okay. One of the things that I I told one of my daughters once she was struggling with decision. I said, you know what? You're sitting on the fence post of indecision and it's really uncomfortable. And when you're sitting on the fence post, there's only one thing you can do. You have to jump off on one side or the other. And as soon as you jump off, it feels better because you've made that decision. And the cool thing is, and this is part of being fearless, is you might find out it's the wrong decision. Yeah. Well, you can jump on the other side, but but I think that's part of being successful too is is being able to make decisions. Sometimes not with all the information you'd like, but maybe eighty percent. And checking it along the way is still a good thing. And being able to reverse course, I think that's part of being fearless. Is also you have to be able to say. God, was that stupid. <laughs> that was really a bad decision. <laughs> and, and then change course. Yeah. When at General Polymers, I would, ha I would bring in a group of people, a management team, and, and, I, would, and I would present an idea and uh, ask people, what do you think? We need to decide on this. And I would listen to everybody, but ultimately somebody has to make a decision, right? So yeah. I make a decision. And I can tell you that there were times when I would come back later and go, God was I wrong. <laughs> you guys were right. Yeah. Let's do this differently. Yeah. And and I think that good managers or just good people need to be able to acknowledge that <laughs> you really screwed up <laughs> and then do something different. Yeah, I guess it's, it's a constant learning process, right? I mean, I, you can only look at what information you had at, at the time, right? Looking at hindsight's kind of it's it's uh, it's not a good exercise. <laughs> Right. It's a great window to reality. <laughs> <laughs> so is there anything that, that I should have asked you but didn't? No, but I, I would offer one more thing about the, the basis for NACT. And we talked a lot about mm -hmm. the intent of the organization. And this is something that I tried to share with any salesperson who was 
willing to listen. And that is to set your intention when you, whenever you're going to make a call, set your intention to be helpful, to, to be authentically helpful. You can't fake it. You have to really want to be helpful in order to ask the right questions. So if you can be authentically helpful, then the line of questioning as a salesperson or in any social interaction becomes completely different. If your intention as a sales rep is, I've got to find out what they're buying this week, I want to make a sale, then your line of questioning is all about you. It's all about what can I get today? Mm -hmm. What's in it for me? And that is clearly evident to anyone you're talking to. And I've uh, challenged people to watch for it. They'll cross their arms. They'll lean back in their chair. They'll pull away from you. People sense when there's a selfish motive. Mm. And when you can be authentically helpful, then the line of questioning doesn't center on your needs. It centers on theirs. Mm. It centers on what gets in your way, what keeps you up at night, what slows down your production, what government agency, particularly in the in food and beverage and healthcare, is there an agency that's requiring you to do something? All of the questions now become about them. And the reception of these people in any situation becomes completely different. And now they begin to share things with you. And that's where curiosity really comes into play because if you really are want, you want to be helpful, you're going to be asking all these questions and you will uncover needs that perhaps your client doesn't even know they have. Mm. You can help them discover some unmet need, either because they have a preconceived notion or because, well, we've always done it this way and they are not aware of new solutions that may be out there. So I think that that is really an important part of my own approach to business in general, but I think it's, it's a central part of NACT as well. And so when we deal with people, it's always about how can we help you. Sounds very nice. John, thank you so much for the uh, wonderful information. Well, thank you for the opportunity to chat. So I want to thank everyone for listening to Specify. And I also want to thank the listeners specifically that are working hard each day to change the world to make it a better place. If you know anyone that would benefit from this episode, please forward it along and send me a note or drop me a comment if you have any feedback or suggestions. Talk to you soon. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.